0: Listening to the Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics and highlighting critical independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Look for The Korea File on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode, In May 2015, on the 70th anniversary of Korea's division into two separate states by Cold War powers, 30 international women peacemakers from around the world walked with thousands of Korean women North and South to call for an end to the Korean War, reunification of families, and the inclusion of women's leadership in the peace process. Christine Ahn, the founder of Women Cross the DMZ, The Korea Policy Institute, the Global Campaign to Save Jeju Island, and the Korea Peace Network helped to organize that event and continues to work for peace on the peninsula in 2019. She joins me today from Hawaii. Hello, Christine. Hi, Andre. So on May 24th, 2015, the International Women's Day for Peace and Disarmament, you and thousands of other women successfully crossed the DMZ, the two-mile-wide demilitarized zone that separates millions of Korean families as a symbolic act of peace. How did this pretty radical action, this kind of massive show of solidarity come about?
1: Well, um, if I could start by saying it was 30 international women from 15 countries, many of the countries that participated in the Korean war under the UN command, which was really led by the U S we, were the ones that crossed the DMZ. And we marched with 10,000 Korean women on both sides of the DMZ. We actually marched with 5,000 women in Pyongyang, 2,000 women in Kaesong, and then 3,000 women met us uh, in Paju on the southern side of the civilian control zone of the DMZ. Because at the time, Park Geun-hye had restricted the number of people that could enter that, that portion um, near the DMZ. And so how did we do it? It took incredible
0: um,
1: savviness and uh,
0: resource coordination.
1: Absolutely. And uh, and I think just, you know, um, putting a stake on the ground and saying we're going to do this. And uh, no matter what it takes, um, we believe it's important to raise global awareness about the unresolved Korean War. The responsibility of the international community. Many of the countries—it's uh, not just the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand. Many countries participated in the Korean War, and. Uh, we have a responsibility to help heal the division. So um, it just felt uh, an important symbolic year. It was the year that Korea was divided by Cold War powers, the U.S. and the former Soviet Union, and we just it felt we couldn't miss this opportunity to um, draw the world's attention to
0: this tragedy. Mm-hmm. And you guys followed it up with an international peace symposium facilitated by multiple groups, including Women Cross the DMZ in Pyongyang, and Seoul, where Korean women shared their experiences and ideas on how to mobilize the power of women to bring an end to war and violent conflict. Uh, Tell us more about the symposium.
1: Well, we um, were able to have a uh, dialogue with um, 250 North Korean women, where they shared with us the Impact of uh, there were there was for example a survivor from the Korean War who uh, shared with us her experience um, of the kind of indiscriminate U.S. bombing campaign and uh, not only did we hear from the women themselves about the impact of the war we were able to share with them the extraordinary organizing by women around the world um, to stop. Um, conflict, to stop wars in their communities, in their country. So, you know, just given the kind of paucity of uh, exchange with um, the international community, I, you know, I think this was a tremendous um, opportunity to bring, because uh, North Korean women are so um, isolated from the world, this was an opportunity for us to bring the world to them.
0: The formal mission of Women Cross the DMZ is to, one, raise global awareness about the urgent need for peace in Korea, two, expand and deepen relationships among women leaders and organizations in the Koreas and globally, and three, to promote women's leadership in the peace-building process on the Korean Peninsula and in the region, and to build capacity and partnerships for uh, a greater impact and sustainability. So have women's voices been underrepresented At the top level, do you think whether it's on the peninsula itself or in American foreign policy circles?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, you know when we see who is at the negotiating table, um, you know, it's it's been you know President Moon and Kim Jong Un, and it's been Donald Trump, and you know the. The, there have been, I mean, obviously on the South Korean side, the foreign minister, Kong Kyung-ha, and uh, on the North Korean side, we know that Kim, Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, played a very important role um, during the Olympics as the first North Korean um, member of the North Korean regime to cross the DMZ and, and go to um, step foot on, on, the, on the southern part of the soil um, and we also see now Madam Chetan He um, kind of playing a really important role with her counterpart Stephen Begun, from the U.S. side. So I think that we see some on the on the on the Korean side, but clearly uh, there is an absence on um, on the U.S. side. But you know, I don't think I think what the studies show us is that uh, while it's important to have women um, at the highest levels negotiating. Um, It also includes women at all levels of the peace process. And so we are pushing for greater civil society inclusion and especially women's groups because um, studies show that when women are involved and women's groups are involved, it actually leads to a peace agreement and it actually leads to a far more durable and lasting
0: one. There are some important facts highlighted on the Women Cross the DMZ website, that's at womencrossdmz.org, that tend to be erased and forgotten about when we discuss the geopolitical implications of the inter-Korean or Korean-American relationships. So for instance, the fact that 10 million families are still separated by the DMZ And the fact that 70 million Koreans live in a constant state of war because of the unresolved conflict. And this is 60 years after the war ended with the temporary ceasefire agreement. And we're still waiting for a peace treaty. And then there's the Incredible financial strain of war, which is like a trillion dollars spent by the United States, China, Russia, Japan, and South Korea on militarization, which is an insane amount of spending, and it fuels these unresolved conflicts as well. Why do you think these kinds of facts are eclipsed when we hear about the two Koreas or about American military involvement on the peninsula discussed in the mainstream media.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the important role that women's groups bring to the table, that we say that, um, you know, when we look at the conflict, we just see these images of tanks and soldiers and missiles shooting up. And absolutely, there is that dangerous side of the potential conflict, you know, erupting again. But there are these other costs right now taking place and uh, these tragedies taking place right now that have, you know, have separated three generations of Korean American, or Koreans on the peninsula, but also Korean-American families. I mean, there are, you know, up to 100,000 Korean-Americans that uh, have families in the North. And now, especially with the Trump travel ban, on Americans traveling to North Korea, they are even further disconnected from their families. So we think it's vital to bring in this human element of uh, the, the the war, the division, um, and say that, you know, families have been torn apart, homes have been um, destroyed, and, you know, all we ever see on TV is the militarized portion of this war, which is, you know, has a huge cause on, um, on Americans' lives, because think about that the Korean War is the oldest American conflict. And, you know, the point that I often make uh, when I go to Washington, D.C. and I meet with uh, members of Congress, you know, they often want to just say, oh, well, what about this? And what about North Korea's nuclear weapons? And what about the human rights violations? And I say, absolutely. That's why we have to get the peace to address those issues, North Korea is not going to unilaterally disarm. They need a security guarantee. Um, we've heard experts uh, who have succeeded in freezing North Korea's nuclear program, whether it's Secretary of Defense Bill Perry or former President Jimmy Carter. You know, These guys say North Korea is not going to give up their nuclear weapons unless there is peace, unless there is normalization of relations. So we need to get to there to, uh, to see the the nuclear-free Korean peninsula. Um, But, you know, I just think that we don't see the the cost on um, on our security. And I think that's why it's so important to have women's peace groups um, be part of the conversation, because we bring in the issue of how are we, you know, and I just was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I was meeting with all these um, the offices, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and you know Elizabeth Warren, and you know these women are trying to bring a new vision of a U.S. foreign policy, and trying to um, you know put forth pretty bold vision and an agenda to transform the United States, whether it's Medicare for all, a new green deal, or um, you know free uh, college tuition. And we are never going to be able to achieve that gold agenda if we continue to spend 54% of the U.S. national budget on the military. And most Americans don't realize that it was the Korean War that inaugurated the military industrial complex. It was within that three-year war Uh, the U.S. defense spending quadrupled. And, uh, you know, it set forth a new U.S. foreign policy that um, became one that uh, put the U.S. as the world's police. And I think that Americans are kind of tired of playing that role, and we don't want war anymore. I think, obviously, the Yemen vote um, signified that uh, Americans are tired of U.S. foreign incursion around the world. And, um, and so I think there's a symbolic and actual tangible uh, result that would, re- that would come from, you know, the U.S. negotiating a peace agreement with North Korea that would have really positive effects on our security here in the United States.
0: 2018 saw some major movement towards what what might actually be a lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula. We're speaking in late January 2019. So how far have the Koreas come in the last year? And how would you describe inter-Korean relations at this moment?
1: Oh, gosh, Andre, it's just extraordinary. I mean, I just I, you know, as I was reflecting with Gloria Steinem, who was one of the 30 women that crossed the DMZ, we recently sat down together to pen an op-ed, which will be published in the Washington Post, about this moment and the opportunity for a new U.S. foreign policy. We uh, were talking about uh, how when we crossed the DMZ, we could have never imagined that the DMZ would be declared a peace zone by the two Koreas. We would have never imagined that a portion of the DMZ would be demined. We would have never imagined that North and South Korean soldiers would have shaken hands and uh, brought down guard posts. We would have never imagined that a portion of the West Sea would be declared a peace zone. Um, It's just extraordinary the, um, the progress that the two Koreas have made through the three summits between Kim Jong-un and and President Moon Jae-in and the two declarations that they signed, the Panmunjom Declaration and the Pyongyang Declaration. Um, It's just, you know, it's just awe-inspiring. And I, I hope they win the Nobel Peace Prize because they have really put aside so much enmity and hostility and mistrust and uh, put forward a vision of uh, a Korean peninsula that could be at peace that could peacefully coexist and um, and you know it's it's just it's just extraordinary and I think that it's so vital to bring that experience and that um, and those changes to the United States because um, The U.S. is stuck in time. I mean, some of the debates and the reactions, especially from mainstream media and pundits and some of the think tanks that are financed by the defense contractors, you know, they are so quick to uh, discount this extraordinary progress, and I think that um, that's the job of civil society and women's peace groups to say, oh, no, 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 you know, um, we know you benefit from a permanent state of war on the Korean Peninsula, and this is the time, and this, this window will not take place in another generation. We have to push now. For the United States to end the Korean War with North Korea
0: And there's a real feeling of momentum right so so I'm wondering like to your mind what was the most what was the best moment and what was the most surprising moment uh, for you uh, in 2018?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. I mean, I would say when Kim Yo-jong went to the Olympics, I mean, obviously when the two Korean athletes marched together in the opening ceremony, I mean, we know it's been done before, but it took place amid really heightened tensions when the U.S. was considering a a bloody nose strike on North Korea. Um, You know, I would say when Moon Jae-in stood You know, in front of 150,000 North Koreans at that stadium in Pyongyang, and you know, said we are going to achieve a nuclear-free Korean Peninsula. We're going to achieve peace. We're going to end this war. To like, you know, wildly cheering North Koreans. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just amazing, and you know, it just shows the power of the human spirit to transcend um, war and uh, fear and put our best foot forward and, you know, present a vision of hope and possibility and peace.
0: And how do you see this peace process evolving as the year goes on? I mean, Trump and Kim Jong-un are due to meet again next month in February 2019, supposedly. <laughs> do you think Do you think that follow-up in June is likely to happen? And, and what do you see occurring uh, after that?
1: Well, I... It looks like they had an effective meeting, you know, in terms of the – it looks like they have moved on a diplomatic track. It looks like Stephen B. Goon and um, Madam Taesung-hee from the North Korean side – have, you know, they had an effective meeting. It was great that they met in Sweden. Um, Obviously, it's important for countries like Sweden that have a uh, strong uh, diplomatic corps versus the United States. The State Department is still woefully understaffed. Um, But, you know, to play that role, to help bring the two sides together and figure out a path um, towards, you know, a, a peace process, that will it include, you know, denuclearization, and so I, I, it sounds like, you know, that's what Trump said is that plans are, are going forward for this meeting to take place, and it looks like Vietnam may be a location, you know, it's yet to be seen, um, and what will happen afterwards. Uh, hopefully, that you know will just further cement. Um, a process. We have heard several things could be on the table. And one of the most exciting things could be the possibility of opening a um, liaison office in both Pyongyang and Washington, D.C. I've also heard that um, the issue of Korean American reunions will be also on the table. And I think that is very heartening to have something concrete like that that is um, opening people's hearts and is helping to heal division of actual people. Uh, we know that the issue of the remains, the, the retrieval of um, Korean War soldiers, um, you know, fallen soldiers, play has played a very important role. This is, you know, we think about North and South Korea. We know that in the last Sunshine Era, there were, you know, obviously Kaesong and Gong there have been opportunities for North and South Koreans to engage. We know that I don't know, up to half a million South Koreans visited North Korea during that those sunshine years. And so, uh, but there hasn't been the, the same kind of engagement. We've had opportunities to have, um, you know, humanitarian aid operations. But in terms of actual concrete um, establishing, you know, mutual trust, I, I don't think we've ever quite gotten there. And um, And so I think that this is an opportunity to do so. The retrieval remains. My understanding is that it has really helped, um, you know, the U.S. military with the Korean People's Army to actually, you know, understand how each side works. But that is on the military side. We need to have it on the diplomatic side. There needs to be that kind of level of coordination with the State Department. And so I hope is that uh, the issue of Korean-American reunions will be on the table, and that there will be a process to actually facilitate that. Uh, So I don't know. We also know that there will be tremendous shade thrown by the pundit community, by, (laughs) sadly, the Democrats. Um, you know, who is anything but Trump um, against it. We know that uh, a lot of the defense contractors, their stocks fell racing on Lockheed Martin, Boeing um, after the summit. And so, you know, I think we just should be prepared that that is a knee-jerk reaction to a permanent economy that is positioned towards war and that, you know, we have to call it, we have to name it and we have to be prepared to push back against it and just keep pushing the message, you want denuclearization in North Korea, you got to get to peace. You want human rights in North Korea, you got to get to peace. And, you know, that's why it's so vital that Women Cross GMC and our partners are in this for the long long
0: haul. In an interview with the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, an anti-nuclear weapon pacifist NGO uh, late last year, you talk about your own personal journey into peace activism. And, you talk about a class that you attended at Georgetown, the, at the School of Foreign Service there, where Robert Gallucci, who was chief U.S. negotiator uh, with North Korea during the 1994 nuclear crisis under uh, the Bill Clinton administration, came to speak to your class, and he discussed a proposed U.S. first strike on Yongbyon that was meant to destroy North Korea's nuclear reactors. And, and he talked about how former President Jimmy Carter Uh, went to North Korea with a CNN camera crew and interrupted Clinton's plan to go to war. This ultimately led to the framework which froze North Korea's nuclear program for over a decade. So was the United States legitimately that close to attacking North Korea? How would that have played out? And and why why is this such a largely forgotten moment in American history?
1: I know it was just a transformative moment for me as a Korean American sitting there that I I had no idea that we were this close to uh, renewed conflict and yeah, Bob Blue Teeth told the whole story of, you know, sitting in the Oval Office and um, making that decision and, you know, basically Jimmy Carter subverting their plans, you know, basically calling the Clinton administration saying, I'm on a plane. I'm going to North Korea to meet with Kim Il-sung. And I think that, you know, what, having just met Jimmy Carter last November and sitting down with him for half an hour in his office at the Carter Center, I just, oh my God, it was just uh, one of those historic moments for me to meet such a historic figure like Jimmy Carter and, you know, really him doing that, um, that act of courage. And, uh, and I think that, for me, the, um, the important story behind that story of all these amazing leaders and their courage is, is actually the social movements, the peace movements, the Korean-American pastors that, uh, you know, had the ear of President Carter, uh, whether it was also the ambassador to South Korea, James Laney, who was a former Methodist minister, you know, who actually traveled in, um, you know, 1980 in the aftermath of Gwangju to, like, travel around the country and hear from the grassroots about what had taken place and countered the narrative that was put forth by the CIA or from the um, the U.S. military. And so, you know, I just, that, that's the hidden part of where um, the, the river of peace that flows and um, the importance of having that uh, strong and robust civil society, social movements that um, put pressure on leaders to do the right thing. And so, um, yeah, it was just, it was a transformative thing. And I just felt as a Korean American who has uh, this privilege and has access, uh, whereas people on the Korean Peninsula don't have the same kind of access to influence the U.S., you know, I basically said, this is my call. This is my duty. Um, And so I've committed, you know, the last 15 years of my life to trying to see an end to this war and seeing peace between the United States and North Korea.
0: A conflict on the peninsula, a a hot war. It's it's an unthinkable thing just because of the human cost. Like, the number of casualties that would be 100% going to happen, uh, that would be sure to come with any kind of war. And we're talking about like millions of Korean civilians dead. But that kind of potential consequence or likely consequence uh, is almost never highlighted in the conversations that surround the escalation of tensions between the US and North Korea whenever they happen, including early last year before the uh, Trump-Kim summit. And this is despite the fact that the American military actions in Iraq and Vietnam and so many other countries has resulted in millions of Ted civilians. So like, is this American relationship with historical amnesia a a unique thing to that that country, do you think?
1: Oh, my gosh, I definitely don't think so. I mean, you look at what happened with Iran and, uh, you know, there is total amnesia. I mean, you think about 1954, how the U.S. CIA, uh, you know, went in and did a coup of the democratically elected leader who wanted to you know, nationalize um, certain parts of the economy. Um, you know, Yeah, there's historical amnesia, I think, on every issue, but I think the Korean War is definitely called the Forgotten War. We, we have a lot of, um, I think, reckoning, and especially because of the kind of anti-war movements and social movements that emerged during the Vietnam War that wasn't there. For the Korean War. So while there is, you know, the films and documentaries made about Vietnam and the kind of responsibility that Americans have in paying a debt to the Vietnamese people, the legacy of Agent Orange. And I just don't think that the same is there. You know, we, we just see the vilification of North Korea that, you know, the crazy regime is just pursuing nuclear weapons to threaten the world. And there is no, you know, and there's no connecting the dots to um, not just, like, the experience of these other countries that have been victims of U.S. regime change, but their their own experience of North Koreans, of 80 percent of North Korean cities being completely bombed to bits, to seeing, you know, U.S. committing um, war crimes by bombing dams and flooding, you know, entire plains of, Farm, farms and agricultural land, uh, you know, not recognizing the kind of bombshell mentality that uh, U.S. action on the Korean Peninsula has played. And I'm not just talking about the North, but also the hidden history of repression in South Korea, in the South, whether it's no gun read, you know, the, the massacre of innocent civilians, or on Jeju Island calling the you know, U.S. calling force, you know, the scorched earth campaign, Against the uprising of Jeju Islanders that were protesting the division, that was really a U.S.-led uh, division, and you know the U.N. backing separate elections, and you know I just think there's so much um, untold history, critical history that uh, would help explain so much more, and uh, and why the Korean situation has become as it is, and. You know, there's not time to do that. So I think we have to just always keep looking at what is the, the positive side of, of brokering peace, and, um, and that, you know, this is the historic window. Moon Jae-in is not going to be in office for much longer. He will be in office till 2021. And, you know, we won't have another Moon Jae-in for some time. And this is the moment to really see the end to this, uh, you know, oldest American conflict.
0: Christine Ahn is the founder of Women Cross the DMZ of the Korea Policy Institute, the global campaign to save Jeju Island, and the Korea Peace Network. She joined me today from Hawaii. Christine, thanks for speaking with The Korea File.
1: Thank you, Andre.
0: That's The Korea File for this month. For more information, check out womencrossdmz.org. To read Christine's interview with the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, go to wagingpeace.org. Follow us on Twitter at André Margulé and at Christine On. Music on this episode is from Creative Commons. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics and highlighting critical independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Look for the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in early March to review the February summit with a special guest. Until then, I'm André Goulet. Thanks for listening.